Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Very excited to be talking about synthetic biology. We have Dr. Richie Komen joining us on the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Yep. Thank you. Really excited, really excited. It was because we were at the church lab in Cambridge in over January interviewing George Church that we ended up getting in touch. That's right. And now here you are on the show. And Richie's background is awesome. He is a senior research scientist and lead of the synthetic biology platform at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard University. He oversees all research conducted by the synthetic biology platform, including advances in nucleic acid synthesis and sequencing, neurotech, gene therapy, aging reversal, gene editing, organism recoding, in situ omics, organ engineering, stem cell therapy, extinct species resurrection, and all aspects relating to the intersection of synthetic biology and synthetic chemistry. Richie is also co-PI along with George Church at the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School of an IARPA-funded project to map synaptic connectivity in large brain volumes. And you can find the links below to richiecoman.com as well as the Wies Institute page, his LinkedIn profile, and his Google Scholar page. All right, Richie, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? <coughs> Yeah, so I think from a scientific perspective, it's a pretty exciting time to be around, right? I mean, science just keeps progressing. The technology keeps getting better and better. If you think about uh, the CRISPR craze, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit, that didn't exist five, six, or 10 years ago, right? That's, that's a relatively new technology. And so what's going to happen in five, 10 years from now, it's kind of an unimaginable thing. It could exponentially increase and get very exciting. <coughs> it most certainly will be exciting. But on the flip side, if you think about, uh, you know, in terms of the United States and the world, maybe politically, it's kind of a scary time, I think, in humanity. <coughs> uh, especially as a scientist, when you think about kind of the, the post-fact, argumentless dynamic going on, that's, that's kind of uh, quite scary. So uh, we'll see how this trend continues, you know. Yeah, the fact that we haven't had some of the cutting-edge technologies even just a couple years ago, and now those are yeah. kind of opening up the edge of knowledge for us, for people to go and dig and see whatever they can discover with these new tools that are being yeah, made, yeah. that's huge. But then also, like you said, there's a lot of geopolitical yeah, yeah. Um, things that we have to get through. Um, Richie, let's hear about you from your journey. Where were you born? <laughs> uh, I was born in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. So, uh, yeah, kind of uh, about 30 minutes outside the city. And how did you get hooked growing up in Chicago? How did you get hooked into synthetic biology? What, how did your interest in science form? It's just something that was always there. I was always a technical person. I always was interested in science in all of my classes and things like that. So there's no question in my mind that I was going to do something of that nature. I mean, maybe something like architecture, engineering, but uh, that was pretty much kind of always a, a thing. Um, we ended up going to the Museum of Science and Industry all a ton. It was kind of like a second home. Uh, I don't know if we went there more because I was interested in it or became, I was interested in it because we went there more, but uh, I remember that as a good childhood memory. And then how about then venturing into all the way into like Santa Clara University right. where you did your BS in chemistry all the way up to the U of Illinois, you went back. To That's Illinois. right. Yeah, yep. yeah, for the PhD. <coughs> Tell us about this. Uh, so for me, it just ended up being at that time a question of what kind of science I was going to do. And I gravitated towards chemistry because I think it seemed like a happy medium between the highly mathematical physics and the more sort of um, fact memorization based biology. I kind of like both. 
Uh, and so went for the chemistry route, and then went to graduate school uh, because I liked organic chemistry because it was the one field, subfield that popped out that had some sort of pragmatism. It was like a tool, very applied. Um, and so I went into graduate school with that mindset, saying like, I'm gonna be a synthetic chemist. And then what were your like big aha moments during the, the bachelor's and during the uh, PhD where you were just like, oh my gosh, this is exploding my mind? <clears throat> yeah, I had a big transition really early in, uh, in graduate school where uh, I think I was just, I had committed somewhat earlier to that, that subfield. And I went to a small undergrad, I didn't have a graduate program, so I wasn't really aware of all the kind of science that was going on at the time. And what ended up happening was uh, Francis Crick, the famous scientist, died in the early 2000s. And I, it, was a, it was big news. I was reading his obituary. And of course, I knew him as the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, like most people know him for. Uh, but then I was reading about what he had done for like, the last 30 years of his life, and I found out he was a prominent research scientist in the uh, field of consciousness. And at that time, I, I think I, I didn't even know that people studied that sort of thing. Right? It didn't seem like a, a scientific pursuit. Uh, and so I, it really just kind of flipped the switch. And it, it opened up a door. And I, I, as a sub-hobby, I almost became interested in, in or I definitely became interested in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a it was completely uh, as a sub-hobby path became interested in, in career path at the time. And so it would be this thing where I, I would get really interested and I, I would read up on it. And I'd, I'd try and cram the two worlds together. And I couldn't find a way to do it. And I'd kind of get depressed and drop it and then go back to what I have to do. And then something else would happen and I'd go back. And this, this was a series of things that happened throughout graduate school. Um, you know, the consciousness stuff is like a really basic kind of uh, philosophical science questions. I mean, the science questions are philosophical, but like big questions in the universe. And then I remember seeing a lot of stuff on the brain computer interfaces. It was a cover of nature with this uh, electrode array of this paralyzed person controlling things on the screen. Mm -hmm. And once again, I remember looking at that and then looking at what I was doing. And I was like, I'd much rather be doing this, this stuff, stuff over here. And so I'm trying to think of some way to make the paths kind of converge. And again, didn't happen. So I'd have to kind of scrap it and move on. And then there was a third moment when I found out about this technique called optogenetics. Yes. <clears throat> right, where you, uh, you'd be able to essentially stimulate the brain cells with light. So it's a combination of genetic techniques with hardware. Right, so you use a virus or a variety of genetic techniques to put these ion channels that basically move ions across the gradient with pulses of colored light, mm -hmm. which is what turns in what's, what cells do when they fire action potentials. So you can use all this genetic trickery to put these things in very specific places in the brain and then just pulse it with light and get this amazing control. And I think that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I said, well, listen, I'm just not going to do this stuff anymore. I'm going to go and do this stuff. And so I decided to make like a pretty big switch. Because um, it was apparent I couldn't, I couldn't really bring the two worlds together. I was, I was kind of making a successful trajectory into like biomaterials, tissue engineering, things that I, I found interesting. But I think I made a list in my head of you know, my priorities. And I, I had this realization that like, I'm not really going to settle for like the 15th thing on the list. I'm pretty much going to you know, do the first thing on the list. That was, at least I felt relatively young at the time. I said, I have a lot of time to go, so I'm just gonna go for it. And was fortunate enough to have somebody hire me in a lab to do that sort of stuff, even though I had zero experience with it. So these, it worked out. <laughs> the, the, these are such, uh, again, these reoccurring themes that happen from people that we sit down with that we get the young, museums that, that influence young kids yeah. that get into science. And then the, also the, you wanted something that was translational. 
You want something that had like almost immediate impact. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people gravitate towards the brain sciences. I think that's why there's, you know, the brain initiative, why, well, there's brain initiative be sort of in a, in a related context is that there's horrific brain diseases that don't have a cure. And all this is because of this massive complexity of the brain. And it's because it's so complex, it operates, and then you have your emergent, emergent property of your experiences, which is kind of the most amazing thing, right? I mean, that's, yeah. you know, everything that you're doing or experiencing has some sort of material manifestation that goes on, which in itself is kind of crazy, but then you think of the opposite, that you can actually come from it externally and manipulate it, and presumably that's gonna change your experience, yeah. right? So, I mean, there's uh, magnetic stimulation and things like that, and then there's these patients with deep brain stimulators and you can read things in the literature of uh, them putting, being put in the wrong place and turning them on and kind of bizarre effects happening. Yeah, the <laughs> fact that we can, not only that, that we feel consciousness from what is emerging from within yeah. our body, but then also that we can stimulate transcranially even yeah. and have an augmented experience. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have the whole history of like traumatic uh, brain disease and injuries and all these very bizarre neuropsychiatric disorders to look at, right? So people get in a car accident and then all this weird stuff just seems to happen, yeah. right? You wake up, you have this cohesive experience of the world and you're like, all right, then what, you know, it's just this one solid thing that's happening and then something happens to somebody and there's like a fragment that, that's offset and you're like, I guess it's really just a million pieces working in concert. So how, do, how does that even work? It's kind of amazing. And I mean, even the fact that I guess consciousness exists, right? That's kind of the amazing thing. Why does a series of things happen that creates them to be aware? You know, yeah. lots of things are complicated. Like the TV's complicated, right? Uh, you know, the, this building's complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of biology's complicated. There's something about the brain, specifically the human brain, where it's just connected somehow, and then it just, it operates, and then you have the human experience. Yeah. And really, I mean, all, all society, is, is the result of like this, this, these objects operating with some sort of agenda. And then you can look at like the, the uh, history of the universe and then like humanity comes up and now you have this, these agents and like chaos yeah. ensues as a result. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. The, the impact on, on the, the universe from the emergence of, of the human brains is, is amazing. Is it true that uh, we don't know what 70% of the, uh, the brain does? Still, I mean, I, I, I might have heard that a long time. Well, no, no, I don't think. I mean, they used to say that you only use 20% of your brain, which is, which is true, and that you only use 20% of your brain at a given time. So I think that that got kind of uh, coerced into like a pop, pop culture idea that there's like this vacancy of, of like dark matter. Uh, I don't think it's quite like that. I mean, it's kind of on a crude scale mapped out. You know, people know what, what these things do crudely, but... Um, cohesive theory of the of the brain does not yet exist thank you now okay so when when you were finding yourself doing this like transition chemistry with neuroscience mm -hmm. was this kind of some of the work that you're doing with the postdoc at BU yeah. as well as Harvard Medical School the MIT media lab yeah so tell us a little bit about that yeah so my postdoc was in, in the, the neuro field so I got in a lab that did this uh, optogenetics technique and so for my postdoc, it was, it was almost all mouse work. So I went from organic synthesis in a hood to like brain surgery in mice. Mm. Uh, and so I had, I had a, a couple of different projects. Uh, one was a drug delivery to the brain, which is a huge problem, right? Things don't get in. You want to deliver a drug, there's all these barriers. So uh, I worked with um, 
a surgeon at Harvard Medical School to develop like a, a surgical technique for that. And then we also had some like uh, nanomaterial delivery agents that we did with that. And so my time, in, uh, my affiliation with MIT is also in that. So the lab that co-invented the optogenetics technique I was, I was working with. Okay. Yeah, and optogenetics for neuromodulation is beautiful, and I think it has a lot of potential for um, neuroaugmentation. It's a very exciting field. Yeah. So then, what about then, you kind of got into biomaterials engineering a couple, even like almost four years ago. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I mean, I've still, so the thing about chemistry, despite the fact that I, I haven't really fully left it, it's a really, really useful tool to bring into biology. Right, so if you, can, if you can synthesize molecules, synthesize materials and polymers, you can apply that to just a tremendous amount of, of biological questions. Yes. So that always seems to work its way in because it just ends up being effective. So it's, it's, never, it's never gone. I think it's a good foundation to have people start off in chemistry, move into biology. So chemistry enabled you to synthesize the materials that can then do things like expand tissues to make it That's easier right. to... Imaging. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so there's a technique called expansion microscopy, which we do a lot of. <clears throat> and that's really just a lot of polymer chemistry. You know, there's a lot of chemistry in there. And so it just was amazing how it was one of these things that kind of just found itself into the mix in terms of a, a tool that translated. Yeah. yeah, that's okay. And then give us a, a, maybe a couple more examples. And this will probably end up wandering us now into the Wies Institute because this is one of the things that Wies also is doing is making the, 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 these, these uh, synthesizing the, through chemistry the, what the, so these things like polymers that enable expansion microscopy right, right. to, to right. happen. So, so then now it's been almost three years. Yeah. Yeah. At the Wies Institute, right. At the Wies Institute. And this is a big deal because Wies Institute is biologically inspired engineering. Right. And we have the, the, first, the, the first asset that lists all of the, all of the different things. Yeah. 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 And then um, gene delivery, genome editing, cell engineering, protein engineering, nucleic acid synthesis, nucleic acid sequencing. I mean, what and this do you is just Yeah, this is just the synthetic biology platform. So the Wies Institute is broken up into platforms. Yes. <clears throat> right, that are associated with some faculty. It's a really unique and exciting place because it's this, at least the, yeah, the, the, the platform and the whole institute is supposed to situate itself in between academia and industry. So it's supposed to take all the, the cool technology uh, and then kind of transition it out into companies or licensing deals. So instead of things just kind of circulating in this academic space, it's supposed to move them out into the world. I love that. Right, so it's a very applied place. And so another thing that they have is, is full-time research scientists that are tasked to do this, which is, is one of the things, it's, it's part of the, the system that I'm in. Sorry, the mic. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, you just operate in a different, a different way than if you're like a graduate student, a postdoc in academia, or even like a scientist in industry. So it's, it's I always say it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? Because the, the, the stereotypes of, of, the good stereotypes of academia is that it's like novel, exciting things, right? You bring to life things that never existed before. You just pursue your ideas. Uh, the negative stereotype is that it's just a bunch of sort of relevant things that you can't communicate to the world. Uh, and then industry, of course, has scalability, right? You can make these huge companies with tons of people and you can crank out products. But at least if you're, you, can, you can get the feeling like you're a cog in the wheel and you're just like part of this massive team and, and companies don't have, especially big companies, don't have the ability to, to kind of uh, move quickly, 
because they're, they're big. <clears throat> so here we can spend some time, we can try and troubleshoot these crazy ideas. And I think the best part is that we can take a huge amount of risk. So it's okay if we come up with an idea for something crazy, spend three years, it just bombs. I mean, you'd rather it not. Mm -hmm. uh, but your career's not over. You just say, okay, well, let's, let's try and push something else out through. Um, so that's the appeal. If you're a grad student, a postdoc, you really have this, this time frame, right? Where you have to like, I got five years or whatever. I got to get a couple papers. I got to get out the door. We don't have that pressure. We say, like, we can just focus on getting this stuff to work. Let's, let's just do that. So it almost, it's almost as though Wies Institute and other, um, of, they're kind of like these scientific institutes that are able to run all the permutations of what could be successful science that is then applied in industry. Yeah. And then to be able to have that actually, it builds a very, it builds a more uh, cohesive, I think, relationship between academia and industry. Yeah. Also, industry can kind of go off on its own with the products without talking to scientists too much um, as they iterate yeah, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, it gets like escape velocity and then it, they yeah. can kind of go. <laughs> <coughs> but if you're a big company, you, you know, obviously you're probably going to invest in basic research, but you shouldn't, shouldn't be your, your main thing. You, you know, you, you probably are going to want to spend a very small time and effort pursuing really crazy things, where we should be spending almost all our time doing really crazy things. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. So yeah. then synthetic biology <coughs> platform is one of the platforms that's you right. said of these. Yeah. What are the other platforms? Uh, there's a soft robotics one. There's a um, uh, diagnostic uh, chips, like a lab on a chip one. Cool. Um, applied materials. I don't remember all the names. Nice. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I have yeah. my allegiance to you have my your platform. Allegiance. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, <laughs> but not as good at remembering other people. So chips, robotics. <laughs> I mean, you're ventures. These ventures into other. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. So, all right. Within within um, synthetic biology, um, maybe teach us about like this idea of biologically inspired engineering with yeah. synthetic biology. Yeah, wander us down. Sure, this. sure. I, th I mean, the all the platforms have have the, an engineering component mm -hmm. involved. I, I, I always just uh, imagine that as just having a very applied focus. But there's also, I mean, there generally are a lot of engineers, a lot of people that do hardware development, uh, a lot of microfluidics, a lot of things like that, because again, we, we're aiming to build some, something that can scale and do a lot of these tasks. So uh, synthetic biology is broad. What we do is huge. I mean, this list is, is pretty big. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> ridiculously big, but you can talk about uh, synthesis and sequencing at least is, is kind of the backbone of a lot of industries, right? So DNA, uh, what, what biolab isn't doing or utilizing something relating to DNA? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a current market for DNA synthesis. It's done chemically. Uh, a lot of industries do that. And that, that has a limit in terms of the length you can make. So we're trying to push that limit, right? So if you go and order an, an oligo, it's generally about 200 base pairs long. So you can order that and you have to do other ways to kind of get it longer. So we're trying to do it um, biologically, not chemically, so you'd be able to get, you know, 10 times that. That's one of the goals. Sequencing uh, is one of the most, you know, successful technologies to come out of biotechnology ever. Uh, we're still trying to push that. The main, the main thrust that we've done is actually in, si in situ sequencing. Mm -hmm. So uh, less effort towards what you'd classically think of as like a box on a, on a bench that does sequencing and more of like analyzing biological tissues and reading out sequences in there. Uh, uh, gene delivery and genome editing. I mean, gen genome editing with the CRISPR re revolution is, is something that we do a lot of, and the delivery aspect is, is basically getting the proteins and nucleic acid there, 
to do what it's supposed to do. So if it's a therapy, if you're going to do anything in, in humans, you have to deliver it. So that's a, a lot of viral engineering sometimes. So um, out of the, um, let's start with the gene editing yep. one. Okay, so this is, you mentioned this at the very beginning, just that such a, just even a you know, couple of years ago, this, this wasn't uh, even roaring to the same degree that it is now. Right. Yeah. And then now it seems like we want to have genetic enhancements. We want to eradicate diseases. Yeah. Um, that these are potentially some of the most important things, especially when we have our children, that we could prevent mm -hmm. ailments from developing. These are very important technologies. Right, right. Yeah. And it's really just the ease of use of the tool is what it, what it comes down to. So there used to be a variety of iterations of this genome editing technology that had been around for a while. The problem is they're just really hard to, to use. Um, so there was these um, zinc finger nucleases, talons. Uh, the, the crux of a lot of this technology is that it, you, need to put, you need to cut DNA in very specific places and then control how it gets repaired. So that's a lot of the, the genome editing. So there used to, you used to be able to, well, you still can, but the previous iterations involve protein engineering. So you'd have some sequence that you'd want to, to target, and then you'd have to design the proteins that would recognize that. And that's a protein engineering task, and it takes time. And then as soon as Cas9 was invented, or I guess discovered, uh, that was just a total game changer, because now it's a, it's a RNA, DNA recognition event. So you really just have to design the, the complement of the target that you want with this RNA, which is easy, because you know the sequence, so you just program the sequence. And then the enzyme just goes there and makes the cuts. So as soon as that happened, it was like a, a volcano erupting, right? Yeah. And so um, the Wies Institute was one of the first labs to do the demonstration in eukaryotes. So it was like a, the initial invention was, was discovered like in a tube, and then there was like kind of a, a, a tie for this demo, and we were, we were one of those labs. Yeah, and to, to have that part of, yeah. be a part of the revolution where you actually get to see it becomes so much easier to make yeah. the edits is what's next? What else within <laughs> the multi-billion year evolutionary process that we have yet to discover that we yeah, can right, basically right. take and yeah, apply to, to our desire to bioengineer our future? Yeah. yeah, there's so much. Yeah, I think the, the, the way we're going with it is we're trying to refine the tool so we can multiplex it basically. So if you have a, a cell and you want to make a cut somewhere, you can do that. There's some off-target effects, people are addressing that. Um, but we want to make like, let's say a, a thousand edits or something, right? We can't do that right now. Uh, so it's really trying to push the tools so you can do that. So if you, have a, if you have a cell, you can presumably engineer it, so you change the code so it's completely invulnerable to like viral infections. Then you have completely in, like virally impervious cell lines that you can use and those, that has industry applications because it's not going to get wiped out and you're not going to lose a million dollars from all the, uh, the hit you take, you know? And then why would we, could, could we be potentially doing this at the stage of inception of the, of the child? <laughs> that way we don't even need to be in, injecting with all of the yeah. vaccines down the line? Could we be making the child immune <laughs> to the smallpoxes and measles? At the yeah, I mean that that uh, I mean there's a whole field of vaccines which is, is you know exciting and trying to do that. Uh, you can also edit earlier and earlier. That's like a super uh, hot button issue right now. Mm -hmm. There's a recent issue in China, very controversial. So everybody's very up in arms about doing any kind of like germline editing. Um, 
But presumably, if you have... Why is that controversial? Uh, because you pass, you know, if you edit your germline, you pass on everything that you do to, to future generations. And especially if you do it, you know, you're, you're making changes for the future of somebody who doesn't have a, a choice in the matter. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Um, but if it's to prevent suffering... Right. I mean, there are yeah. instances, I mean, there's a, whole, there's a slew of genetic disorders that are, are well characterized that are very deter genetically deterministic. So if you have this, then you're going to get this disease. I mean, most things don't fall into that category, but there are some. Uh, and so this is presumably a way to correct that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some opponents would say you can just screen that out, right? Mm. So you mm -hmm. can have, you can sort of create several embryos, yes. sequence them, and then just pick the other ones, or pick the ones that don't have that, don't that, have that, that yeah. genotype. Yeah. Um, but the proponents of doing the, the editing would say that, that you're creating more Embryos, if you consider that a precious thing, yeah. you're now creating more embryos that you're not going to take on to something. Yeah. Uh, and then the, there's a slippery slope argument about the designer babies that people are very worried about. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I don't think there's anything um, the current state of the field certainly cannot do this huge editing. I don't think we understand genetics enough to even be able to do that, and we don't have the tools to even uh, be able to make those kinds of engineering uh, tasks. But that's what a lot of people are saying right now. And then, um, you know, all of, out of everything that we're going to uh, even continue discussing, I just want to let people know that this is just such a small fraction of what really is what, is what you're, you're doing and what you're, right. yeah, because if you go look at um, Richie's Google Scholar page, I mean, <laughs> there's so many publications on there. And so to actually be able to dig into the weeds of that science, um, people can probably just reach out to you if they yeah, want yeah, to sure. dig deeper into the, into the weeds of the science. Um, and we'll try to do our best throughout the conversation. But there's so many things that these um, apply to. Okay, you brought up um, the um, nucleic acid synthesis and sequencing. Mm -hmm. So sequencing technologies, this Carlson curve that we've been following um, yeah. has just been incredible that now it's down to less than a thousand bucks to do a whole genome sequencing yep. from t tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, insane. Right, right. Um, so, but then the synthesis part, I wanna just quickly yeah. touch on. Um, so what were you speaking about earlier when you were saying you were synthesizing nucleic acids? Yeah, yeah, so um, DNA and RNA, if you, there's a lot of uh, vendors, if you need to order a short sequence of DNA, you just put it, you know, you fill out the form and order it and they send it in the mail. And they send <coughs> you a synthesis of nucleic acids. Right, yeah, a little tube, usually little tube. it's dried, maybe a milligram at most. But a milligram of dried <coughs> DNA or RNA. That's right. And in just, this can be uh, ordered from the internet just from a company yeah. and right. yeah yeah and, and it's 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 made completely synthetically made synthetically right which is the i, I think it's kind of a cool thing it, it, there, i think there's maybe an intrinsic concept of vitalism like if it's a a biological molecule it has some sort of maybe biological essence to it but it's not really true if you look mm. at dna it's a molecule like anything else and if you make it in, an, in a non-biological fashion and you look at the two side by side, they're indistinguishable, they'll operate indistinguishably. So uh, if, you, if you look at the DNA synthesis, it's, it's established chemistry, it's been around for decades now. And the precursors are similar, but they're all kind of um, optimized in a way to make the organic chemistry of it work. But the, the output, 
comes off the instrument is still the exact same thing. It's just a piece of DNA. But it has limits synthetically. Like, you know, think of your cells replicating. It's, you have all this DNA replication machinery. You're making millions and millions of base pairs of DNA. And then if you go to the current oligosynthesis technology, it's like 200, right? So it, it can't, you can't make long sequences effectively. Or I guess the, the yield drops, right? So it's, as you get longer and longer, all the imperfections build up and you kind of get, kind of get crap. So there's, there's alternate methods to kind of combine these things and make longer ones, but that initial part still has that limit. So we're trying to break that limit. And, w and what is a, a nucleic acid made of when you make it synthetically? What, what material do you oh, use to make it? It's, the precursors are still the monomers. It's just the ends are kind of optimized to fit the organic chemistry. The monomers? Right. So you have uh, there's four bases in DNA, mm -hmm. A, T, C, and G. Right? The bases are still there. They're still attached to a sugar. And then you have that phosphate, right? And so uh, you basically have the two ends that are going to polymerize, uh -huh. and you just have chemical groups on each end that are going to fit the chemistry. Okay. So we'll just stack one on top of another in an iterative way, and then you could do some, you know, final ways to kind of uh, knock the protecting groups off the areas you want and oxidize the things to get the backbone or the phosphates the right way, and then you just cleave it off. And then you have your oligo. I, sub, I literally submit a sequence that I want synthetically created. And then, That's right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. So then, um, but it, so in situ omics, mm -hmm. so you're doing um, sequencing and what are the cells here and how are you sequencing them? Yeah. So this, this video or the still, which I'll have the, the video up now, <clears throat> this is our technology called uh, FISSEQ or uh, fluorescence in situ sequencing. And so uh, next generation sequencing uh, is very commonplace. Most of the techniques actually are imaging techniques. You don't really know because it's kind of what's under the hood of the instrument. And most people don't care, right? You, you, people want to sequence something, they use the instrument, it gives them the data, and they're not particularly interested in what's going on in the machine. But we are because we're kind of cracking this thing open and, and trying to force it to happen on biological samples. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so. What's happening in a lot of these sequence, sequencers are that you're, you're basically getting clusters of the DNA or RNA or DNA that was once RNA that you care about. And it's doing this iterative chemistry to make them light up and change colors. The colors tell you what the base is, right? And so we're doing the same thing just inside the cell. So if you look, this is a cell. This is all the RNA, or what was once the RNA. Each one of those spots represents an RNA molecule. Can we pause it, Ron? Yeah. Yeah, go to the still. All right. I can uh, loop it. Can we yeah, we can loop it. Let's loop it. <coughs> yeah, so. You okay, know. and just to give an idea of size, what is this size here that we're you know, speaking that, yeah, of? Yeah, you know, this is about 20 mic micrometers. Right, 20 microns? Yeah. Wow. Okay, and that's um, um, <coughs> um, a millionth, billionth of a. Uh, tw uh, 20,000 nanometers. And. Uh, a nanometer is a billionth? Yeah, it's, it's a power of 10 off of a micron. So you're talking about, yeah, uh, two orders of magnitude off of, you know, millimeter scale. Off millimeter yeah, I mean, scale. Is yeah. Typical, this is a relatively standard uh, cell culture size, so. Uh, and this is multiple uh, cells. This, yeah, each one of these with this bright spot represents the, the nucleus. And <laughs> what's, what cell is this? These, I believe, are hex cells. So hex, it, yeah, cells. It, hex, which is uh, oh, endothelial kidney cells, human endothelial kidney, kidney cells. cells. Okay. And I think these these were chosen. It, 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 we could do it in a lot of different cells. I think these were chosen because 
um, maybe they're fiberglass. Just an easy, easy to culture cell for demo purposes. I'll sh the, the next slides have, have the actual brain stuff. But for here, yes. what you want to look at is the little spot, right? So that was once an RNA molecule. We do a bunch of chemistry to it. Yeah, let's, let's go, go back, back quick just so we can see the, 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 yeah. the still is easier. Yeah, the, so the fluorescence in the cell. Yeah. Here, go back so it's not uh, animating. Okay. Oh, so it's not animating. Okay, okay, oh, got it. The still. Got it, yeah, the yeah. still. I could, okay. Yeah, yeah, right here. <clears throat> yeah, so each one of these dots is the RNA. Is the RNA. Yeah. And, and there's just, that much RNA. There's actually a lot more than that. There's a lot more than that. <laughs> but that is sort of a subsampling of it. And orange right. and pink and green are different RNA, or is it just different fluorescence? Different bases. Different bases. Oh, right, okay. so we want to know the, uh, the four bases. There's four colors, four bases. And so we apply the, the chemistry, and it lights up a certain color. And I, don't, I don't know offhand remember the colors, but let's just say magenta is A. So you, you, you'll see the magenta, you'll see that spot, you'll go, okay, that, that position is an A. And green might be a G. Okay, green is G. And then you'll iterate, and, the spot, and they'll change colors. And that's telling you literally the sequence of what, what that, that is. That's actually what's happening in a sequencer on the benchtop, or at least a lot of them. But um, it's happening in like a glass flow cell in a very controlled environment. So we're adopting what's happening there onto the actual cell itself. Onto the cell culture. Or the biological sample. We could do it in, in tissue slices. biological sample. We do it in brain slices, <clears throat> we do it in cell culture. So you can apply, what did you call it, in, in situ uh, omics or um, sequencing. And, That's right. And your these are, how are you getting them to fluoresce like that? There's some chemistry where you basically, uh, you'll have an unknown, like this stretch of an unknown, <clears throat> and you put a, a primer. And there's a couple of different ways to do it, but uh, I'll go over maybe the most straightforward way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have a primer and you have a polymerase. The polymerase will just fill in. It'll just, typically, it'll just like take and it'll put the complement of what, what's there. But we have a special phosphates, the ATCs and Gs that get polymerized in. There's special ones that are labeled with each of these colors. And they also have a blocking group that means it doesn't just keep going, it puts only one in and it stops. So it'll, it'll try to polymerize, it goes, it extends one, it stops, snap a picture, and then you cut off the fluorophore and the blocking group and you just repeat. So it'll keep going one by one and you just read off what's there and hence you get the color change. And this is a moment to moment change of color that you're reading through imaging it? That's right. And then you can then say that because it was green, then it was pink, then it was orange, yeah. then you're reading what, that, what the RNA. Exactly. Yeah, you get the sequence. You're sequencing. Yeah. Moment to moment, you can capture the images that fast. Well, you know, yeah. this is, uh, there's, there's some fluidic steps in between. There's fluidic steps. Right, right. So you, you run the reaction, and then you kind of wash everything out, snap a picture, and then you have to run the other reactions and wash everything out. And so you iterate. Uh, and then you, get, you do the image analysis, you can make a pretty video. <laughs> Whoa. And, and so, then, so then every single one is, uh, is, every single one of the bits that are there of RNA are, are different? They're different transcriptions of, of RNA? Uh, it's possible to have two of the same RNA. Yeah. You, you yeah. All, the sequencing, it all comes out of the sequencing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's unlikely, as you can tell just from the picture, that most of them are, are going to be different. But you can, you can analyze it and compare it to the non-spatial version and get that data. And then you <laughs> being able to sequence in the cell culture instead of in the sequencer, 
the importance of that? Yeah, so I mean, you, when you do, with, without doing it this way, you throw away all spatial information. Spatial right? information. So if you had, I don't know, tumor biopsy. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get the, the transcriptomic or the RNA profile, uh, you'd have to just grind it up and then put it in one of those instruments. You just have this, this list that comes out. You don't yeah. actually know where it came from. Yeah. Uh, so you could detect something abnormal. You wouldn't know if that's half the cells or one cell. And even if you did, you wouldn't know what the spatial relationship is. Mm. In, in biology, it's all spatial relationships with, within complex tissues. Yes. So this technique allows you to just retain that and find out where it is exactly cool. at the moment. So you can actually see the spatial relationships, yeah. yeah, moment to moment, cool, rather than just getting a list of the sequence when you grind it up right. and sequence it. And so in this, this example here, uh, we're capturing the endogenous signals, right? So that's the RNA that's just actually there. But we can do tricks to, to label things with DNA just so we can read it out in this fashion, right? So, uh, you know, microscopy is a very powerful tool, but you're kind of limited by colors. Uh, so it's hard, to, it's hard to look at more than like four or five things. Uh, but if each thing has a sequence associated with it, then you're basically looking at four to the n number of things, where n is the length. Okay. Right? So if you have like uh, 50 things you want to look at, and you could kind of barcode them each with a, a sequence, then you just have to do a couple of rounds of this, and then you can see everything. Mm -hmm. Right, so it allows us huge multiplexing capacity, and that's really the crux of the the neural project that I'm, I can I can talk yeah, about. Yeah, let's do that. Let's dive into the neural project. Yeah. So this is the brain initiative: mapping <coughs> synaptic connectivity in large brain volumes. That's right. Super interesting. Yeah. So, you know, the, as I as everybody knows, the brain is just immensely complex, and the connectivity is is really really complicated. Each neuron in the cortex at least, which is, you know, this is a mouse brain, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, connects to about like 8,000 other, other synapse, other cells. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's millions and millions of cells. So the, the connectivity is, is extremely complicated, very hard to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And synapses are, are tiny, right? So you're talking about like 10 nanometer scale, and then you have macro scale objects of being the brain. So how do you actually dissect that out? How do you figure out and map all these connections? Um, I, I say the current way of doing it is just to cut the brain into really, really thin sections, stain it and look at everything. But that's like a huge brute force technique yeah. that uh, you can imagine having some scaling problems, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we're trying to find new technology to overcome those scaling issues. So what we're doing is we're barcoding the cells in, in the synapses and then reading those out. So instead of, you know, if, if the cells can be thought of as roads, instead of tracing all the roads, we're just inserting signposts where they intersect and then reading those out. Mm -hmm. And from there, we can make a, recon uh, we can, uh, make a reconstruction of what, where everything crosses. Mm -hmm. Not a perfect analogy, but it kind of, yeah. kind of gets the point. So we do the writing of the, the barcodes with a virus. So this is a mouse brain slice that had a viral injection, mm -hmm. makes the cells green, and hence the cells. Mm -hmm. But each one of these cells actually now has a, a barcode, like a molecular identifier. Mm. Uh, and it's a, about, actually it's exactly 30 long. So each one has a different one. So within this context, we can identify four to the 30 different cells, which is way more in cells that are in that whole entire brain. Mm. Probably it's like way more than the number of sands on the, on, the, on the planet, grains of sand. So it's like some astronomical number. So the scaling issue is kind of completely taken care of by that, right? 
Uh, and then we simply have to read the them ba back out and establish the connectivity where the adjacent ones are. Does that make sense? It's always a complicated project to, to explain. It is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, so you're injecting the virus in order for them to uh, fluoresce? In order to give them that molecular identity. To give them, to get yeah. a molecular identity. Right, so you know, okay. if you think about it, if you just do, if you do colors, again, you know, these are all greens. So you say, well, I want to find out this cell versus that cell. I'll just make them a different color. You're going to hit five, right? Five colors, which okay. is not going to get you very far. Far, identifying okay. It. So I need to give this sort of a, the same kind of thing, an identifier Fire. that isn't color. That okay. is just something else a that I can read post, out. like a barcode. Yeah, so I give that a nucleic acid identifier. Okay. And then I use our sequencing technology to tell me what that cell is. So cell this will be is. cell number... 3002 based yeah. on its sequence. Okay. Right. Okay, so you can not only uniquely identify the cells in the brain, but then you can also sequence them individually. That's right. And, and I don't even have to know. So if I, you know, if I inject, if I sequence right here and up here, and I see a spot that gives me a sequence here and here, I know it's the same cell. Right. So I don't have to sit there and and trace this path. Mm. I care less about that. So I'm going to do long range in addition to short range. And then, and then do you follow that same protocol of the in-situ omics where you're, yep. yeah, where you're fluorescing them? Yep. Uh, yeah, we do the same, the same techniques on those cells. And that's how you uh, <coughs> sequence them after that's you've right. identified, given them the identifiers. Yeah, so if you go to the, the next slide. Okay, cool. That's what this picture will be. So this is a, a static image of one of the imaging cycles. So the previous video kept changing colors. Yeah. This one's not changing colors. It's just thick. So it's as, it's as if you're scanning through. Okay. But you can see each one of these uh, colored dots uh, is one of those identifiers. And so if it plays... Okay, the video? Yeah, yeah, okay. I guess the next all right. slide. <laughs> right, you're scanning through, so you see all these projections and going. going so we're moving, we're moving from the interior to the exterior. Yeah, just through the slice from the bottom to the top. From the bottom to right, the top. Right, you see all these colors. Yeah. If we were to iterate in a line or just take one slice, it would flash in the same way as that other video flashed, and I'd be able to say like, oh, this is cell, and I can list off the barcode. Yeah, got it. Right. So I can say in this, this right here, that one dot, I can tell you what that is. I can tell you what that sequence is. And then if we find that another dot somewhere else has the same sequence, I know it's the exact same cell. Okay, okay. And then, then you're then, you're, 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 you're taking a, th a three-dimensional, uh, it's kind of like you're taking the camera from, the, from, the, from yep. the base of the brain and you're moving it out towards the exterior of the brain. Yep. And this is what we're seeing pop up as the kind of the neuronal structures that are sh being right. shown. And then the colors are based on what cell uh what what the the sequence of, right. of the cell is based on is yeah. the color that we see yeah so the gray is just the the location of the cell and, and what is white then white seems yeah, yeah, to be that, the that's, most that's, yeah that's that's where um just where the cell boundary is the cell so, boundary. so what was uh, what was green in the previous one is now white oh just to free up a uh, color space right oh okay okay that's the cell boundary yeah right so this is like one large projection yeah. Right, and that's like the cell body. Those are cell bodies. Oh, that's where I the see. the cell body is. Oh, Cell okay. body. And these are like the long uh, dendrites. Dendrite, yeah. Can we take a question from the audience? 
Yes, yeah. Johan is a molecular biologist, and he wants to know uh, what is your intentions? What are your intentions of doing gene editing? Did you answer that question already? Your intentions. Gene editing. We don't, right now, we're developing gene editing technology, right? So we don't have, um, the projects currently aren't on the applications of it. We're trying to make the technology better, which is then useful to everybody else doing any kind of gene editing. Thank you for chiming in, Johan. We do have um, a recoding recoding project, again, that has to do with uh, uh, virus resistance, right? So if if you can basically change all the codons in a cell to eliminate uh, one of them, a virus won't be able to actually operate. So you'd be basically uh, alter the genome so it can still make all the, all the proteins it wants to, but it's kind of handicapped to make the, the ones you've removed, and then, and then a virus is immune. So that would be an application that's... Okay. All right, and then let's... Um Let's get, let's get a little bit deeper into this, and then eventually what we want to do is we want to be able to map the entirety of brains. Yeah. Right. And, and then when you do that, then that gives you the ability to, what can we do with that? So you'd, you'd, uh, that gives you half the story. Okay. Right, so uh, in biology, especially in neuroscience, it's basically uh, form and function, right? So you'd need anatomy, you need physiology. So I'd have to know what that neuron does. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, and then I would, uh, and then you need some sort of behavior and to overlay with it. So this is actually in the visual cortex. This is anatomy. <laughs> this is anatomy. So you're it's just telling anatomy. me what's physically there. Physically there. Plus, it's not telling also, me anything about how it functions. You've all, but you have barcoded and sequenced them. That's yep. another thing. So anatomy plus barcoding and sequencing. Right. But the then, sequencing is yeah. here to give the connectivity in the anatomy. Yeah. Right. Okay. But there's no physiology. There could be. You we can't just tell from the sequencing what the physiology. Right. Okay. So from if this, they're excitatory or in- inhibitory. Well, we like would that. be able to. Uh, we have ways to figure that out. Okay. But I don't know, like the firing rate in response to a visual stimulus. Oh. Oh. Right. Okay. So what you would do is you'd have the mouse and you'd, you'd do some sort of behavior. You know, uh-huh. uh, if you if you look at the visual cortex, you show it something visual. Yeah. Right, and then you record the activity. And then afterwards, you take the anatomy and then you overlay it. Okay, so I will show images if we're doing a, uh, a, a, a scan of the uh, architecture of the, of the visual cortex. I'd show an image and then I would, I would uh, observe what happens as I'm showing the image to see what's happening physiologically. That's right. And then you could do that over and over again for the different areas of the brain to understand the physiologies that are occurring based on what stimuli you're inputting. Yeah, in that case, then, then you're limited by um, technology for physiology. I mean, we do have one of these far out projects where we're, we've, we're trying to write in physiology into the cells. How do how you think that can happen? <clears throat> so it's supposed to take the spike rate and, and encode it on a stretch of DNA so that we can read it later. Oh, so if you do that, yeah. potentially, you would have the whole brain encoding temporal information that we read out at a, at a later time. Yeah. That's a little trickier. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's a spike rate, and that means like you'd have multiple spike rates over time, and that's... That would certainly overcome the ability to, to record from many areas. You'd be, if, if you had a transgenic mouse that had that operating, you would know every, every cell's operation within that window. So normally you would, you know, the, the, two, cool. the two ways uh, cool. that, that people are, are 
looking at physiology are the two main ways. The classic way where you put an electrode in and you just record, right? And you could put in multiple electrodes, you could put electrode arrays, but that's still only really subsampling the brain. It's only a small fraction, right? And what you could also do is express a bunch of proteins that, that light up. So when the, when the cell fires, it, it flashes. And you can put a camera and watch it. Now you're limited to that, that area of view where the camera is implanted. Uh, but if you could do this other technique, it's basically recording through the whole thing all the time. So you'd slice it up and that information would be written into the brain tissue. And then we would do something like this to read it out. Oh, it gets written into the brain tissue yeah. and then you read it out later. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> We're uh, writing it into the brain tissue. What are the long-term effects of that? I mean, it, it, would, it would be in a mouse. Yeah, yeah. And it would be for, you know, some designated period of time for an experiment. Uh, it's, okay. it's, one of, it's one of our lofty goals, but it's not as, uh, it's not as far along as the anatomy. Yeah. Right, the yeah. physiology is. There's a time component to physiology that makes a, a, a whole separate challenge. Yeah, they come, right, this is yeah, like, yeah, the time component right. to the physiology makes it the harder right. challenge, yeah. So this anatomy, this is like a, a, a one time point in that mouse's Correct. life. Yeah. Sack the yeah. mouse and that's what the brain is and now we're trying to analyze it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so you need the anatomy and the physiology to make the whole connectome. Yeah. yeah. Well, to get the connectome, the connectome is anatomy. It's just anatomy, but it's more uh, important to also get the physiology. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. And have we done a connectome yet? There, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the other technique, the slice thin and, yeah. and, and map. Uh, is, is trying to scale up, so fruit fly brains, things like that. We did get those. Yep. But, um, and that's like a fruit fly brain has what, like a couple still thousands? Millions. I mean, thousands still millions, of yeah. neurons or what? It should still be millions. I mean, but it, it's, millions? it's, uh, wow. it's still, I mean, think of a human brain and then think yeah. of a mouse brain. It's a significant size reduction. And a fly brain is even smaller than there. So still there's still millions. a lot you can learn from, from fly brain, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, actually, there's a lot of conserved anatomy. The, cor the cortex, the wrinkly part of your brain, right, that you see, is, it's kind of crammed in there, but it's really a flat sheet. And if you were to look at the, just a chunk of cortex in a human, in a mouse, uh, a monkey, they're really hard to tell the difference, actually. The general anatomy is similar, right? You have this structure called the cortical column that's presumably has some general algorithm that it processes information with. And it's just repeated across the whole brain. So people are just trying to f kind of deconstruct the cortical column. So if you could do that in the visual cortex of a yeah, mouse, yeah. it should at least have something to say about like prefrontal co cortex in a human. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a general feature of the brain with the cortex. So uh, even that level of understanding is still a bit elusive in neuroscience. And okay, now the brain initiative stuff's fascinating. I'm super excited for you guys to keep making moves there. Mm -hmm. What about on the stem cell therapy side of things, all the way to the reproductive technology side of things? I love this type of stuff. I don't know something about um, something about stem cell therapy gets me really excited because it, <coughs> it seems like it's one of the big keys to longevity. Yeah. So it's a it's thus far kind of a smaller component of, of the Symbio platform. But it may be something that is emerging, right? If we're trying to put resources into it, I think uh, it would be great if we can push more stem cell research, and we could do more um, in terms of the reproductive biotechnology too, because that's kind of an exciting area. Uh, I know I've only only recently kind of cracked open this this field and discovered this field of uh, 
in vitro gametogenesis. So I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but you can take a, well, you can take a human cell and de-differentiate it into a stem, a embryonic stem cell-like cell called iPS cell. That's kind of old news. That already won the Nobel Prize. That's being done all over the place. <clears throat> and the, the glory of that is that it's your own cell, so it has your own DNA. Uh, so you, if, you, if you were to differentiate into some cell for cell therapy, it wouldn't have any kind of immune rejection. But what's currently not possible in humans is to make germ cells out of that. But a lot of work has been able to do that in, in animals like mice. So it's probably going to be possible that sometime in the future, you'd be able to take your cell, convert it to one of these other cells, and differentiate it into a sperm cell. So if you have people that have fertility issues or people that have uh, injuries, uh, I know a lot of uh, cancer treatments for kids actually makes them infertile as a, a side effect. So as people grow up and they just simply can't have any mm. kids. This would be a way to kind of uh, bypass your own reproductive system to develop these cells. Right? So if that were to happen, then, then somewhat of a cure for infertility mm -hmm. and can almost change like the human dynamic of sexual reproduction to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, it's possible that you wouldn't even, um, I mean, it, it opens up the possibility of like uh, two people, two, two men or two women to be able to have a baby with their own genetic identity. Mm -hmm. uh, so huge, huge ramifications for a lot of that stuff in mm -hmm. terms of effect on society. How do we program all the dumb people to stop having babies? <laughs> yeah. How do we do that? Yeah, that, that's a different question. I don't sure know. Sure is. <laughs> there, 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 there are, uh, uh, I think, it's a very, it's a very important topic though. It is. It's a very important topic. How do we, uh, how do we maximize our collective abilities on this rock? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, in yeah. terms of again, in terms of reproduction, if you, even if you could just do egg cell development, <clears throat> right? I mean, a lot, a lot of women freeze their eggs and are unsuccessful. <clears throat> uh, it really, I, I think that a big immediate effect is on like on. on women's rights and women's abilities in society. Because basically, they, the biology is not, is not even in terms of the, its effect on reproduction with men and women. A lot of women feel this pressure to have to have kids at an earlier age because they feel like there's a clock ticking. Mm -hmm. uh, if something like this could work, it can some, somewhat eliminate that clock. And if that clock gets eliminated, that can have a huge dynamic just in terms of society that could be really beneficial. We could wait until whatever time we want to have children. Right. Yeah. With, with the healthiest embryos as right. well. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> Part of that also, that question that, that Ranj brought up, it's also interesting to think about what reproductive technologies and genetic engineering could do for all babies that are being birthed into the world. If, they're, if we do figure out longitudinally what really good genetic edits are for intelligence or working memory or, or metabolism that we could, um, then there would be the bar of, of, of intelligence just keeps moving up. Yeah, I think the challenge is that when you look at human traits like that, uh, it, it never falls into like three genes mm -hmm. that if they're active, this is your IQ. It's not like a, a switch that gets flipped. Yeah. It's like these massively complex uh, combinations of genes that are 
or not well understood. And you really get this nurture nature component where it's really difficult to parse out uh, how much of one happens versus the other. It could be that you get some statistical effect uh, that you can, you can uh, monitor saying like, oh, people with, uh, on average, people with these mutations or these genes are this much smarter. And then if you would do the edits, it might not actually end up that way because it's a less of a, a nature component than you actually think it is. Could be better, uh, better use of time to invest in you know, school system reform than gene editing reform, <laughs> right? As long as they educate people on being critical thinkers and not obedient workers, uh, talk to them about enhancing their intelligence, not having them learn uh, and to repeat, and to program, to be creative, innovative, yeah. find a better way for all of us. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I've always been interested in the, the nurture-nature debate, as far as I can remember. And it's still an open-ended question in terms of, like, for a specific instance, how much of it is one versus the other. It's almost always both, and it, in an in a impossible combination to kind of inter, un, un, untangle. Um, this, so. is, this, is, this is a critical point, is that when you have this potential of the seed of a child that is trying to unleash itself fully into the world if it gets squashed by the economic, political, and social machinery and inhibits its full creative expression versus if, you, if it gets all the tools that it needs, if it gets all its basic needs met, and that if it's able to fully creatively express itself. So then our, one of our goals with the show is to constantly be propagating conversation around the world and action around the world around how to make a better social fabric that enables that full yeah. creative expression for every seed because then you don't get the the, the instances where it just gets squashed by the system. Other thoughts around quick on stem cells, I really think that there's just so much potential that people have been saying now around um, stem cells for longevity purposes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, aging is another thing that, that obviously is interest, interesting to us and a lot of people. <clears throat> it's a very hard thing to tackle because it's such a diffuse thing, right? It's just, age, you know, it's almost tough to even define what aging is and, and how to look at it because it's, it's basically what's happening all the time to everything in your body. The loss of homeostatic capacity. Yeah. So how do you, how do you have a, a, a treatment or a cure that, that can like attack all these things or fix all these things or, or change all these things? It's really difficult. Um, so there are a lot of experiments that I've seen where you take like the young blood of a, a mouse and put it through an old, old, older mice. parabiosis? Yeah, you can actually yeah. take two mice and surgically connect them in such a way that their circulatory systems are fused, and you kind of average out the, uh, the phenotype, right? The older mouse gets better, and the younger mouse gets older, some, so to speak. So, or you can just take the young uh, liter of blood or yeah. from the young and give it to the, the old, um, right. and that way they re regenerate the blood, the right. young does, and the, yeah. Yeah, so presumably you can imagine a cell therapy that, that creates a mimic of the young blood, and then you can infuse that, presumably, that would, that would have an anti-aging effect. And there so. are also very powerful cells in the bone marrow? Yeah, that's where a lot of the, the blood-borne stem cells are. Yeah. So. And so then to be able to um, extract that in a safe way and then deliver that to, to people along their um, aging as well. There's yeah. all different types of ways that this 
potentially the growth of the stem cells as well in its own um, bioreactors, and right, then right. the yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. There's all these these effects of aging. Like, um, you know, your your genome is, is mostly fixed, right? Your DNA is not supposed to change, but when it replicates, it does. So it accumulates errors. And there's also the epigenetics, like the way it's read changes because you get these marks on it that accumulate over time. So one theory is that a lot of the aging is this epigenetic noise that builds up. Like things, uh, everything, um, SSLs differentiate and form tissues, you get these epigenetic markers that kind of get diffuse over time. And so if you could just sort of rewrite those, you can stall aging. And that's a totally different mechanism than the blood stuff. So you might have to have like, six or seven different therapies going in parallel to really kind of win the war. Yeah, 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 this is a cool point too, is being able to merge the different therapies together. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, just retaining the 15-year-old's homeostatic capacity throughout life and being able to experience more travel, more create more, have more relationships. Um, yeah, spend more time with the people that we yeah. love, watch how civilization flourishes. There's so many components to, to longevity that yeah. are exciting. None of us live, none of us really deserve to live beyond 30. So anyway, at this, that's just my opinion. I should have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> and there's so many other thoughts around um, the work that can be done with synthetic biology that we didn't hit, the extinct species resurrection. Yeah. Like yeah. How, how important that is to have a deeper sense of awe for what has happened on the planet in the past yeah. and um, organ engineering, the, right, these types right. of things. So there's still a bunch of other topics yeah. in synthetic biology. And even if you think about the, you know, the reproductive biotechnology, which you know, I was discussing with respect to human fertility, uh, presumably that could help with the extinct species as well. You know, if you have if you have the genome and you understand at least enough of the reproduction, you might be able to recapitulate that and bring back species. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's far out from what's being done, um, but you know, who knows, it's a possibility. Yeah, I'm for sure ready to have like a mini uh, T-Rex, you know, <laughs> just hanging out around the studio that is like playful, that like, you know, just nuzzles, you know. Yeah, well get over it. It's gone for a reason. And when we're extinct, I hope they just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Let's go home. Yeah, yeah. Think, think about all of the cool, yeah, awe that could be expanded upon. And like you said, with reproductive technology especially as well, it's like, what can we do to be able to give people back power to, um, to eradicate disease? There's so many cool things to do there. Augmentation, like you said, is really challenging. It's like yeah. hard to figure out exactly where that's at. Um, okay, let's, let's ask a couple questions on the way out that we like asking the people that we feature on sure, the show. Sure, sure. So excited to see what you think. Um, do you think we're alone in the cosmos? <clears throat> I, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who doesn't, doesn't speculate as much as, uh, if there's no data, I, 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 don't, I tend to not wonder as much. Uh, it's a big place, it seems likely. But it, do I like believe it or do I know it or do I think a certain thing is almost like an irrelevant question unless there's some indication one way or the other. So unless, unless we find it, unless it's there, then we'll just, we just don't know. It's sort of cheap talk. You know? Do you think we're in a simulation? I don't, I mean, it doesn't feel like it, but that is almost meaningless. You know, that, that's kind of, it's almost like a circular question because if it's so compelling of a simulation that you can't tell it's a simulation, then you wouldn't be able to know if you're in a simulation or not a simulation. So it's almost like, what's the point of 
Oh, I can not. tell it is a simulation. You just you gotta you just don't see it. Yeah. So I mean, it doesn't. I, I don't think there's any reason to think that we are, but it, it would have to be a pretty compelling simulation. You know, there's theories of consciousness that say uh, it's all an illusion, right? And so I always have kind of a similar take on that. Like, well, if it's an illusion, then there's such it's so compelling that we believe the illusion. Then does it make a difference if it's an illusion or not? You know. Then what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? Beautiful thing in the world. Hmm. Well, I can have, uh, I guess, two answers to that. I would say uh, I still think the ability of a piece of matter to operate in such a way that it becomes self-aware is pretty amazing. Uh, so that's maybe an objective scientific one, but I think I, I can go more corny on a personal level, and I could probably say my, my kids. Mm -hmm. I just had kids mm. 10 months ago. So 10 months ago. Yeah. Nice. So I can, go, I, I can definitely go with that one. Yeah. Going into this exponential technology age, I'm yep. curious, and the geopolitical craziness also that we're entering with it, what would yeah. you say is an important skill for kids to know, including even your, you know, 10 month old and whatnot? I think it's about, it's definitely on, on how, how to get to the truth, how to know why something is real or not, how to evaluate information to make an important judgment on that. Instead of just memorizing things and just like regurgitating facts, uh, the ability to, to know why you know something, or at least defend it. You know, so if somebody says something, you say, well, why do you believe that? To actually have an answer. It seems like nowadays it doesn't even get to that. There's not that much, there's not that wonder of um, self-analyzing, right? Uh, and I mean, that goes hand in hand with science. That's just, the, that, that's kind of what science is. There's an experimental component to it, but it's kind of teaching you how to think. Yeah. Uh, so it'd be great if everybody did, you know, engage more in the sciences and, uh, but, or, or even philosophy, but that seems like a hard angle to push for the majority of people because there hasn't been a, bi a big influx in that direction. And I'm not sure what would take it to take that to, to change that in the future. But definitely, you know, critical thinking skills. Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and there's th th that's huge. That's well said about what we need for the future. Yeah. Richie, this has been a really strong episode. I really appreciate you thanks. coming on and thanks. teaching us about synthetic biology. Yeah, thanks for having me. Huge thank you for coming on the yeah. show. Huge shout out to Ron Vargas for producing and directing. Thank you very much. We greatly appreciate it, Ronnie. And I'd love for everyone that watched, give us your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking on it. Go and have more conversations about synthetic biology with your friends, your families, your coworkers, people online on social media. Get talking about it. Check out the links below to richiecoman.com as well as his Vice Institute profile page, LinkedIn, Google Scholar page. Check out those links, everyone. And also support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in, in your community. Support simulation. Our links are below. Help us grow and scale. And go and build. Build the future. Execute your dreams into reality. We love you so much. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you soon. Peace.